This episode of the Signal 51 Chronicles is brought to you by Oscars Pub, 6323 Kent Bowie Boulevard. Roxo Media House. A Signal 51 is police code for an investigation, a law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist. My partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. This week on the Signal 51 Chronicles, Massacre at the Den for Thieves. At about 7 a.m. on Monday, May 14, 1990, three armed men burst into a small cafe well past its prime. The place was the Glass Key at 800 Luella Street in Fort Worth. The men who abruptly entered were toting what was described by survivors as, quote, military-type assault weapons. With those kind of munitions, they obviously didn't come in friendship. The Glass Key Cafe was tucked just blocks from the heart of downtown Fort Worth. On the outskirts of the infamous old Hell's Half Acre, the three men inside donned camouflage fatigues and Halloween masks. One of the masks worn specifically was that of a wolf. Inside were approximately 20 patrons. The gunman, or one of the gunmen, began yelling task force, and according to the owner, Albert Huey U, the gunman also yelled, quote, put your money on the table. Within seconds, the gunman opened fire, killing four people and injuring three patrons inside. One of the injured was Huey U. Outside, a fourth gunman, who was acting as a lookout, fatally shot a fifth man sitting in the parking lot near a gas meter. In addition to the victim outside, the bullet also struck the gas meter. For years, the Glass Key Cafe was a place Fort Worth residents from all sides of town would dine. In 1918, Chinese-born Singh Huey Yu and his Creole wife Effie moved from New Orleans to Fort Worth and opened several restaurants over the years. One of them was the Glass Key Cafe. In the 1930s, the Glass Key was a place where patrons could get a good meal for a mere 35 cents. It was described as a hole-in-the-wall kind of restaurant. As time passed, sons James, Albert, and Wu Fang took over the restaurant operations. For years, the person cooking up the traditional cafe food was a lady named Opal Jean Peoples. As Interstate 35 expanded in the late 1970s and early 80s, the Glass Key Cafe found itself sitting mere feet from the busy freeway. Shoved to the side... It was a difficult location to access, as there is no exit for the freeway. One would either need to cut through the Butler housing projects to cut across the freeway, or take a meandering route through downtown to find the small brick building. By 1990, only one son remained, Albert. Albert, born in 1917 in New Orleans and a graduate of Fort Worth I.M. Terrell High School, was tasked with taking over and running the rundown cafe. Business declined, and with the decline in business, 
Albert changed the operating hours. No longer was the cafe open during traditional restaurant hours. The new hours were typically 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. Strange hours for a cafe, any other cafe that is. Considering the hard times, the cafe needed a new revenue source, something besides selling food. That new source of money-making created hours that would cater to the new customers. The new customers were gamblers. To pay the bills, a different form of income was a must, and the Glass Key Cafe became known more for high-stakes dice games than inexpensive hot plates. And by the high-stakes dice games, we aren't talking about some guys throwing $1 bills on the table. We're talking hundreds of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars per night. Some estimates had as much as $400,000 passing through on a busy night. One patron, who was a former customer, said she heard that as much as $90,000 would pass hands during gambling matches. She was also forthright about why the glass key lacked legitimate business. She said, quote, some people said they would not come here because there were too many thugs, end quote. The police, they were no strangers. In the first five months of 1990, the police were involved in multiple drug busts and multiple calls on robberies, stolen cars, and the list goes on at the Glass Key Cafe. Albert, he too was on the radar of Fort Worth PD. He was indicted in 1989 for running a gambling house. One gambler said Huey U was more than the cafe manager. He controlled the whole gambling operation. But going back to that fateful early morning on May 14, 1990, there are 20 patrons who were inside. Their form of gambling was shooting dice. By some accounts, the game started in the late evening hours on May 13th, and a couple of pros, some well-known gamblers, were there. Now, this game on May 13th into the early morning hours of May 14th this was an invitation-only game as well. The two pros in the house, Robert Satterwhite, who went by the name Austin, and Billy Ed Farmer, who went by the name Unk. Neither of these men were in pursuit of sainthood, but rather ill-gotten gains. So as the gunmen charged in, they shouted task force like we mentioned before. Then they asked everyone to put their money on the table, and then one of them shouted, quote, get Austin. Now, let me break in here right quick. You remember uh, some of our dice games at the Mule Pub years and years ago? I do. I think the stakes were perhaps a little bit lower. Considerably lower. lower. <laughs> uh, Not even on the radar. I think, uh, you know, maybe $100 every now and then yeah, might if, be there. If we, yeah, if we were flush. <laughs> or had some carryovers or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> $400,000, no. No, we were not in those kind of games. No. Robert Satterwhite had the nickname Austin because of his hometown, Austin, the capital of Texas, our Texas. Satterwhite was the product of a family of gamblers, so much so that his own mother said of him, quote, he was straight out gambling, and he was one of the biggest gamblers in the state, end quote. The gambling was not all Satterwhite did to earn money. He had a history of crime, a list as long as our Trinity River. Born and raised in a rough area of Austin, Satterwhite's criminal history dated to 1976, including an 18-month stint in a federal prison for drug charges. Robert Austin Satterwhite led an extravagant lifestyle. At the age of 30, 
He owned a white Mercedes, a van, and a white BMW with the personalized vanity license plate of Mr. RLS-1. Satterwhite lived in a quiet subdivision in southwest Arlington, full of doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. Certainly not gamblers. Well, at least that we know of. If there's one thing we've learned in this world, particularly you, Jake, having lived in a life of, not not living a life of crime, but living a life in crime with crime and in crime crime, yeah and in vice including vice yeah there's one thing we've learned in this world it's that you never do truly know well here's i will touch on this we had a saying you don't really know someone until you execute a search warrant at their house (laughs) and i think that is true oh those are words to live by I'm only speaking the truth in here. Oh, we try to have fun despite these very difficult circumstances we talk about. Anyway, neighbors believe Satterwhite worked in the promotion industry. Contrary to his quiet suburban life, Satterwhite was no stranger to the law. In fact, one year before the events at the Glass Key, Satterwhite was stopped in Austin at the Austin airport with almost $15,000 concealed in a Valvoline motor oil can. Never had one of those as a wallet. How about you, Jake? No, no, can't say that I have. Satterwhite was not charged, but his money was seized. Now, I want to take a little sidebar on this. I just read about something about this, about uh, seizure of money at at an airport. Uh, our, Our friend or some people's friend, depending on your persuasion, George Will, a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote on this this week about a gentleman who had something very similar happen to him. This guy was a uh, was, was an ex-con, is an ex-con, who apparently has his life back in order and opened a uh, a trucking business. And he and he, he took like $40,000 to the airport to travel somewhere, if the way my memory remembers it, to buy a third truck or put down money for a third truck. So that story talks about civil forfeiture, which according to this article is the, is the power to seize property suspected of being produced or involved in crime. And it's a real son of a bitch to get it back. Apparently. No, it is because the property owners have to prove that they're essentially that they're innocent, which is kind of asked backwards to what, how we do this. Uh, talk about this, Jake white. So there's, well, you you having been having to deal with some of this stuff as a, And narcotics and such. So, so there's there's two ways to look at it. One, who's seizing the money, right? Like the state has, state of Texas, for example, has certain criteria. Um, without going too far off in the weeds, you're going to find it most commonly with two crimes. The most common crime, clearly, is dope dealing, yeah. the drug trade, yeah. a violation of Chapter 481 of the Te- Texas Health and Safety Code. Right. So it's very impressive. You know that. Well, I wrote it down probably thousand times, 12,000 times in a long career. So there's in theory, there should be the money and then something. Now, in the state, we didn't we wouldn't seize that money without additional evidence. Ninety nine point nine percent of the time, I suppose there could be some outlying incidences where that could happen. But the vast majority of the time. 
let's just take a, a a patrol officer driving the streets, pulls a car over for whatever traffic violation, develops probable cause, searches the car, finds five ounces of methamphetamine mm-hmm. in the car and $7,000 in the driver's pocket. That was a slam dunk seizure. Now, how often did the person who had the money seized fight for their money back? It's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Which makes you wonder. Perhaps. That you were right. So in the state, there was we always had the money and then something else. We always had the money and the drugs that went along with it. Mm-hmm. There were very, very, very few times. And I maybe outside of a felony conviction for DWI where a person's car is seized, the vast majority of the time, like I said, it was related to a drug crime. And I think it was, had to be a whopping $300. But I also, it's a pretty low threshold. It's a very low threshold. I don't think that, I think that at the state level, it's probably overstated. I don't have any numbers to back this up, but I would suggest that the amount of money that is seized under chapter 59 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, which is the the asset forfeiture, just in the city of Fort Worth is, is very minimal in comparison to an operating budget. I don't know, maybe an average year, a couple, couple hundred thousand dollars. I, you know, and that you're talking 365 days a year, 24 seven, uh, enforcing the law. I don't think it's that much. Yeah. Personally, like I said, maybe a couple hundred thousand. I could be wrong. It could be $5 million. I don't know. Now, with that being said, all of that money doesn't go to the city either. There's a, they split that with the county. Everybody's got their hand. Everybody's got their fingers on it. Yeah, everybody's got their fingers in that pot. Now. Except you and me. Anyway. Correct. Now, there are these, this task force model, and we'll get into task force in a little bit too, Mm -hmm. where the seizures were a little bit larger, at least here, just simply based on the drug dealers that were investigated. They were higher level. They were making more money doing it. The seizure amounts were greater. Um, again, dollar amounts, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it, I think it would, it, it's so minimal. My personal opinion, it probably had no impact on any kind of operating budget for in Fort Worth or probably any other city in the U S that's my, I mean, if you look at it and then you also have to examine how much time and effort goes into it. Yeah. You know, we look at that low threshold of $300. Well, that's a, that's a couple hours worth of paperwork. If you have to go to a, a, it's basically a civil hearing. If you've got to go to a hearing, now you're into that for four hours. I mean, at some point it's costing the city more to, to hold on to it, to, to hold on to it, to seize it, than it's worth doing. So 15,000. So like in this case, it there, there was no mention. Did he have anything else on him? I think in this case, if it was part, if it was a, part of connected to a federal drug investigation it's likely or hopefully they had additional evidence that said hey this money came as is ill-gotten gains or proceeds from selling dope yeah um but yeah it's a it is a difficult scenario 
for a person to get their money back because like you said there is a certain degree where they almost have to prove their innocence right or how, prove how they got the money i don't i don't i don't think that's the the way the founding fathers had it in mind but you know well i don't either and then you have to look at it i mean if you've got a guy going to vegas or coming home from vegas and he he won big yeah what if he won fifteen thousand dollars yeah right i mean better venmo venmo that to yourself <laughs> venmo it hi you know so like i said hopefully there's always something more hopefully it's not just right some you know that's not the world i don't think that's the world we would want to live in definitely not i mean three hundred dollars i mean i take that to the club every friday and saturday night you know to oscar's pub <laughs> Oh, you don't need that much to go to Oscars. No, uh, you don't. Not even close to it. The best well-priced drinks in town. Easily. All right, well, that was the experience of Mr. Satterwhite in Austin. He lost $15,000 at one point in time, confiscated by law enforcement for some reason. But three years before that, in Austin, just, just blocks from Satterwhite's home, three men dressed as utility workers burst into his apartment. During the home invasion, they handcuffed a woman, beat her husband, and asked of Satterwhite's whereabouts. Now, we can surmise safely that perhaps it was because of the problems in Austin that our man, Austin Satterwhite, relocated to Arlington in 1988. It was then he became a frequent guest of the Glass Key. The day before this dreaded incident, 1990, Satterwhite flew home to Austin to visit his mother on Mother's Day. He told her as he was leaving, returning to Fort Worth and Arlington, quote, I've got the biggest game I've ever had, end quote. And Mother's Day is another point that's going to come up in a little bit, how perhaps Mother's Day was the reason there was not a sixth person killed. Uh-huh. Satterwhite's opponent, he was no stranger to the law either. Ed Farmer the man known as Unk. He was a frequent flyer in the drug game as well. He was 53 years old. He lived in Southeast Fort Worth in what police called the farm. The farm. It was a house on a large piece of land, by city standards, that is, surrounded by a six-foot chain-link fence topped with barbed wire. Now, I think it's, again, he lived on what police called the farm. Now, here's one thing that stood out to me. If the police have named your house, mm -hmm. it's usually not because of upstanding behavior. <laughs> it stands out for some reason. It stands out. In this case, since 1980, Farmer, he was in and out of prison on drug convictions. In fact, he had two pending drug charges at the time of the Glass Key shooting. He was also known as a high-stakes gambler. So who and how the gunmen were tipped off to this high-stakes dice game it's still a mystery, but if thousands of dollars were what they were after, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's what they got, or that's what they at least should have gotten. One thing is for certain, the night before this fateful robbery, the police were not around. So we started doing our homework on this one, John, like we do on other ones, and started making calls, checking with people who might have had some inside knowledge on, on this case. <clears throat> You know people, after I, all. I knew a couple people, and so I called uh, Sergeant Kevin Foster. He's retired. A local historian, I think, would be a good description of, of Kevin. Definitely. If you want to know anything about law enforcement in Tarrant County, 
He's that, your man. That is that is who you call. And he gave us some pretty interesting insight uh, about the night before. The leading up to the the weekend of the Glasgow when the shootings occurred, the the uh, old John district working out of North Division. Uh, I was the sergeant. We went up there every Sunday night. We'd somebody would go up there early, get on top of a cold car if there was a train in the yard, and we would start watching. And we'd wait till there was enough cars to go in, and then we we'd hit the place and write gambling tickets and <clears throat> check uh, check for narcotics and walk around the place and make ourselves a nuisance. And we'd leave after about a half hour. It was we it was the only we couldn't stop it, but it was a way of dampening it we did this all year long i believe that when they after the shooting they checked back and they counted all the times there was an officer on a call for service there and i think it was around a thousand times or more that that was from us going up there every weekend the uh, and we had been doing it for a long time well that weekend the lieutenant said that uh, we were wasting our time with the glass key it wasn't going to change Wanted us to, and wanted us to go out and do some standard bar checks that, that Sunday night. So I said, sure, okay, yeah, doesn't hurt my feelings. So we went out and did it. Didn't have much going on. The, you know, I, I drove by, looked over, saw the gambling was going on, but Lieutenant said leave it alone for you know a while. So not being one to buck the system, I decided I'm going to leave it alone for a while because. You know, at some point you you begin to realize you're not really affecting anything. You're just being a nuisance so we went on and had a relatively quiet night we uh made it i made it to, back to the sector at the end of the shift i went home that morning and i was in my garage and i would turn on the, the radio which is wbap to listen to the morning news while i changed the oil in my truck and i heard about the shooting that had happened up there they were they were broadcasting it and i was suddenly thinking those people must have seen us at the time. They had to have scouted the thing. And I was then curious, what if we had gone there? Would we have stopped it or would we have been some of the victims? Because they, they knew we were there every Sunday. But then again, they may have timed it for that Sunday when we didn't show up. It's, uh, it's awfully hard to say, but it's, it's one of those what if questions you never really get beyond, but you know, I, I look back on it, and maybe maybe these people were scouting it. Maybe they saw us. Maybe they scouted it while we were up there some of those times watching that night because everything had to fall right, and I think our presence prevented that a lot. Of course, we had no idea we were preventing something horrible like that from happening. But, uh, it, uh, it's, it's, you know, as soon as uh, – we let up. It happened the first time we let up. It happened. So I, I have to think that they were watching us. Jake, let's talk about Oscar's pub for a second. The home base for so many good people on the west side of Fort Worth, the birthplace of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Wasn't far from where we're, where we're sitting that Jake and I made our vows. Wait, what, 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 what? No, where, where we, hold on, where we fashioned the idea what would become the Signal 51 Chronicles. And it's here, Jake, at Oscar's Pub, that you can drink the tastiest beverages with the friendliest people. Be nice or go home. That's, that's the motto of Oscar's Pub. And that is Oscar's Pub. 
a true friend to the Signal 51 Chronicles. Located at 6323 Camp Bowie. In the early morning hours, about 7 a.m., the gunman screeched to a stop in front of the glass key. 30 minutes before, about 6.30 a.m., a witness heard two men break the window of a 1983 Oldsmobile parked at a grocery store parking lot in the 5400 block of East Barry. That stolen Oldsmobile is what slid to an abrupt stop at the glass key. The four gunmen jumped out of the car. Three entered the glass key and one remained outside as a lookout. When they entered the glass key, they found seven or eight people huddled around the pool table used for dice games. The other were, were patrons milling about. And hiding. And hiding. Two of the patrons were bodyguards for Satterwhite and Farmer. You know, we talked about when they entered, they used the term task force. And just to put a little context to that, it's something that is still used to this day. It's In essence, it's a slang term for police. Where it stems from was from the drug task forces that spawned in the 80s to curb drug crimes, the, quote, war on drugs. The gunmen in this case, they ordered, after yelling task force, they ordered the patrons to put the money on the table, the pool table. And as we mentioned earlier, one of them said, get Austin. But before anyone could comply, they opened fire. One survivor provided an up-close-and-personal account. Tommy Jackson, a frequent flyer at the glass key, was asleep inside when the door burst open and gunshots rang out. Jackson, on the ground, flat on his back, opened his eyes to the sight of a shotgun barrel pointed at his face. Now, the four-star telegram, they described this interesting. Uh, they had an interesting way of describing this, and they said, quote, fate rolled the dice in his favor, end quote. Nice turn of phrase. I like Turn of phrase? Yeah. I like it. The shotgun jammed, allowing Jackson enough time to move slightly. The discharged round missed Jackson, but struck another man next to him. Jackson said the gunmen were wearing fatigues and Halloween masks. He was one of the witnesses that provided that. But he also provided an account of Satterwhite's action. So like I said, Satterwhite, he was, he was a big gambler. He was a known gambler. He was a known drug dealer. And he was maybe a little bit, he had a false sense of protection in this one. Jackson said Satterwhite remained seated in his chair near the pool table, had seemingly no panic. He was confident that the bulletproof vest that he was wearing would stop a bullet. Jackson, who was hiding under the pool table, heard the assailant say, get Austin, get Austin. It was then a suspect shot Satterwhite in the head, right below his right eye, in fact. Jackson saw him collapse on the floor and the chair fall backwards. Another man, 54-year-old Joe Wafer, he died from a single gunshot wound to the head. 56-year-old James Lacey, who arrived only minutes before, was shot twice in the head. 45-year-old Timothy Carter, who went by the name Fruity, was asleep inside. He was fatally shot in the torso. Three more men were shot, but not fatally. As we mentioned earlier, one of those was uh, Albert Huey U. The gunmen, after opening fire, they began collecting the loot, which was money and jewelry, from the table. They did this by scooping it into black plastic trash bags. Only a short time later, they fled. However, before leaving, 
They fired several more shots outside. One of them struck 29-year-old Earl Edwards in the chest. He died five days later at a local hospital. The murders brought the 1990 total in Fort Worth to 42 in just the first five months of the year. Like we've mentioned before, Fort Worth had that name, Murder Worth, for a reason. After the carnage, the gunmen fled. Police were called. The call, a Signal 51 investigation. Todd Karfs, the first responding officer, arrived only seconds after the getaway car fled. Karfs described the scene as strangely quiet and, quote, the bloodiest thing I've ever seen. Hours later, the getaway car was found about five miles away on South Hughes. The investigation into the deadliest murder scene since 1982 was underway. Initially, police believed as much as $400,000 was taken in the robbery. This was not the first robbery at the Glass Key, not even in the past year. Nor was it anywhere close to the first time police had been dispatched to or initiated a call at the Glass Key. In the year prior, 1989, records show that police were dispatched to the Glass Key 344 times. In the 344 times police were called, they made 67 arrests. Going to the same location almost once a day every day may seem like a lot because it actually is. As a matter of fact, the Glass Key was the most active location for Fort Worth PD in 1989. The second most active was a nightclub in which the police responded to 144 times. The other element of crime that was not unique to the glass key was robbery. Only seven months prior, three armed men wearing ski masks burst into the now infamous location. They robbed the patrons of an unknown amount of money and also shot and killed 63-year-old L.K. Harris, a Dallas native who was trying to hide behind the bar. As to the May morning in 1990, Early on, police discovered a large amount of cash on Satterwhite. Jake, tell us how much they found. $60,000 on Satterwhite's body. He wasn't lying. That's a big game. It was a big game, and it's no wonder that he showed up armed with a pistol, wearing a bulletproof vest, and also brought a bodyguard. As the investigation unfolded, you mentioned that the police found the, the stolen car, the getaway car on South U Street. They found some evidentiary items inside. They didn't elaborate at the time. Rumors began to swirl, and like many similar murders, witnesses were not abundant. That was another issue that came to the surface. Remember, they're there participating in a illegal activity. So yeah, well, and it's amazing that that uh, they found sixty thousand on him. That, that they didn't get that. But anyway, what, what is this? Uh, what so is another, another issue came to the surface, and that other issue, copycat robbery started. Uh-huh. The next day, 9 p.m., a dice game in the 4100 block of Comanche was robbed. The actors also ran in, yelling task force. 43-year-old Samuel Basie Sr. was shot in the head. The two actors, quote, terrorized the other occupants, including a three-year-old child. Luck was in favor for Basie. He was shot in the head, point blank range, but survived with only a scalp injury. Boy, that is a lucky day. Yep. The assailants fled after they could not find Basie's son, Samuel Basie Jr. Samuel Basie Jr. was shot the previous day, but was not injured. As this investigation unfolded, police concluded the robbery on Comanche 
and the glass key were not related. Well, four days had passed since the glass key shooting, and police had a break in the case, or so they thought. On May 18th, Timothy Miller, 19, and 22-year-old Paul Miller were arrested in the glass key massacre. An arrest warrant indicated that a confidential informant provided information that, that linked them to the shooting. At 6.30 a.m. on May 14th, Timothy Miller's car, a 1976 Pontiac Grand Prix, was seen at the Glass Key. On May 13th, the previous day, Mother's Day, a neighbor who was later believed to be the confidential informant reported to police that he or she observed Timothy Miller loading assault weapons in the trunk of the car only hours before the shooting. The informant also told police that he overheard Tim Miller and an unidentified person asking if the weapons had enough power to penetrate a bulletproof vest. The same arrest affidavit containing this information also indicated that Paul Miller was wearing camo fatigues mere hours before the shooting. The case against the Miller brothers was largely circumstantial. Police had information indicating their involvement, but the killers wore masks and gloves, so there was no direct evidence that implicated them. Regardless of the evidence or lack thereof, the Miller brothers sat in jail, each with a $100,000 bond. On May 20th, the Millers were released. Their arrests were a source of controversy for obvious reasons. First, numerous people came to the defense of the Millers. Friends and family said they did not think that the brothers could be capable of such violence. A former employer of theirs, Kent Gurley, said, quote, The two guys who worked for me couldn't have done that. End quote. The owner of, of the 7th Street Hamburger Company, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Johnson, said he knew Paul Miller for eight years and, quote, personally, I think they got the wrong guys. They are a close family. They stick together. They are not killers. The arrests of the Miller brothers also called into question police tactics. On the night of the arrests, police executed search warrants at two houses, one at 1200 East Tucker, and another at 1205 East Tucker. Based on the belief that the suspects in the Glass Key murder were heavily armed, a safe assumption, a SWAT team was used to execute the search warrants. Based on the details, it seemed as if a no-knock warrant search warrant was executed at both locations. Tear gas was deployed and extensive damage was done to both locations. Police found Tim and Paul, along with several firearms, but none were the military type used in the slaying. They were more like grandpa's hunting rifles. I do believe they found a sawed-off shotgun, but nothing of that caliber that we described earlier. So regarding the damage, you know, it happens on these high-risk warrants. And it happens for a reason. It's not malicious. These, these high-risk warrants have declined at a rate that's really not fathomable. I don't even know if they do these anymore, to be honest with you. And you're talking decline in like the last two or five years or something to probably. Yeah. Yeah. Last three, four or five years. Uh -huh. Like to the point where, like I said, I don't even think they, I don't think they even execute these warrants anymore. Why is that? Uh, too much controversy. Polit is politically. I think it's, I, I, I think that has something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's the difference though. This one, there was heavy damage. There was, there was pictures. They had talked to the landlord uh, that owned the house, one of the houses where the Miller brothers lived. As 
time progressed, as time went on, the city agreed to pay the owner, the landlord at 1200 East Tucker, $6,500 for damages caused during the raid. In my experience, that's pretty rare. I don't know that I've ever seen them pay damages um, during the execution of the search warrant. I don't want to say that they admitted fault. I'm not suggesting that. But it is rare that the city's going to pay somebody that money based on on these circumstances. And I'm guessing somebody has to, you know, whoever the people they're searching for probably file suit of some kind for to collect those damages i'm guessing yeah i mean they you know that i mean a filing suit could be as easy as calling you know the city basically chief windham at the time chief windham say saying your boys have torn up my house well this uh, this thing was heavily covered I mean, again, remember, right. it, it was the, the deadliest murder since 1982. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of coverage on this. But so Tim Miller told police his account when he was when he was arrested and when he was uh, shortly incarcerated. Was his car there shortly before the slains? Yes, it was. Miller told police, quote, my car was there, but I wasn't. End quote. Miller had loaned his car to Marlon. Carrington, who went by the name Squirrel. Squirrel said he went to the Glass Key Cafe at about 2.45 that morning, which would have been May 14th, 1990, and left at about 6.30 a.m. Sounds like a a four-course meal. A (laughs) four-course meal. Indeed it was. So he leaves 30 minutes before the slain. The Millers, they take a polygraph. After a polygraph, the Miller brothers were released from custody. And, And furthermore, it wasn't just Timothy Miller's statement. It wasn't just those guys saying it couldn't have done the it. The guy saying he couldn't have done it. Family members confirmed both brothers were home at the time of the slaying. And so the case is still unsolved as it stands four or five days later. So one other thing, though, that I think we, we mentioned, we talked about was the informant provided the testimony. This highlights the fact that it's paramount to corroborate what an informant says, Mm -hmm. right? You're not, informants have to be credible and trustworthy, but there also is an element of corroboration. I think with this case, though, there was also an element of pressure, pressure to have to get this thing solved. So are they going to, are the police inclined to act more swiftly? Perhaps. Uh, But at the end of the day, they did get information that somebody saw Timothy Miller loading guns in the trunk and somebody overheard them asking if they could penetrate a bulletproof vest. Uh, The other brother, Paul, wearing camo fatigues. So there were signs pointing. Oh, and then we can't forget that his car was there that morning. Yeah. So there were signs that were there. But I also, I talked to a couple of the other officers that knew the Miller brothers. One of them in particular, both of them, one of them described the Miller brothers as, quote, thugs, um, but said, no way. They were known to, quote, throw hands, but they weren't cold-blooded killers. That's what that's how it was described to me. They were never, the, the officer I talked to, they never apprehended either of the Millers carrying a pistol. I think they were down there, you know, they would go down to Butler Housing just on the other side of the freeway from, from the Glass Key. They were always kind of in the fray, if you will but didn't have the 
persona of being killers yeah. is what was described to me. And there are there are guys like there are guys out there who just enjoy throwing hands, like you said, fighting, you know. I think yes, it seems like it's evolved. There's a well, there's a book. It's called Fist Stick Fist Stick Knife Gun, and it talks about the evolution of crime and violence and this is not a new concept. I mean, it, in in fact, I mean the the same things that were happening in, in that book of late sixties, seventies. I don't remember. I can't remember the exact time frame, but very very similar to what we see to this day, 50, 50 years later. So, well, but, hold on a second. Yeah. So, informant. So it, it sounds to me like this informant was somebody who came forward. Yeah, it was described as an informant. I mean, in all honesty, it was probably more of a a witness. An right, 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 right. So, yeah. So, I was going to talk about the importance of a network of informants. Oh, we're going to get, we're going to, in fact, we're going to talk about a network of informants uh, coming up. We got a good one in this one. In this oh, do we? Oh, we do. Okay. All right. Well, let's carry on then. Like I said, though, the massacre at the Glass Key, it was a tragedy. It was high profile. And the police were definitely chomping at the bit to make arrests. No doubt about it. It was getting a ton of attention. It needed to get solved. Five people did lose their life. Regardless of the circumstances, it needed to get solved. As the days passed, city and county officials toyed with the idea of a crackdown. The plan was to deploy a seldom used common nuisance code. This very much sounds like something that happened back in the days of, of uh, Hell's Half Acre when they we're clamping down on still happens gambling still happens today well anyway this this common nuisance code permitted judges the power to close certain establishments with the caveat that law enforcement could provide evidence of vice laws on gambling prostitution and drug dealing were being violated within the premises of these places the glass key was no stranger to gambling we knew that in fact, police said it had been a common gambling location for more than a decade. Jake, you mentioned that uh, while we were talking earlier, trying to shut these, uh, you, and you've also, you're, you're an old vice guy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that trying to shut these operations down can be difficult. It can be time-consuming and posts a lot of obstacles for police. Walk us through some of that difficulty. So locations like the Glass Key, they're still problematic today. They still get robbed. They're magnets for criminals in a variety of ways, but typically your dope dealing, prison gang member, your whatever crook of the month flavor, that's that's what who you're going to find in there. Today, though, these locations, these gambling locations, they look a little bit different, and they're everywhere. They're all over the city, and they pop up overnight. Typically, they... They'll show up in a rundown strip shopping center or back room of a convenience store. Instead of pool tables converted to a dice table like we saw in the glass key, the infamous pool table, the gambling mechanisms are their video eight liners is what they are. And the the issue is is how many there are. Um and just like we saw at the glass key, if you remember the glass key, it seemed to be filled with the same struggles in terms of enforcement as the modern day game rooms. Ultimately though, these, these are places where your average hardworking resident, they, 
they didn't stop at the glass key. They don't stop at the ones today. Um, the glass key, one lady said she had stopped at the cafe for a quick meal in the months leading up to the shooting. When she came out, all four of her car wheels had been stolen. Women were known to lure men from the cafe and steal their money. Like today's enforcement efforts at illegal gambling establishments, raids were frequent at the glass key. And one of the things I saw it on the, the Facebook page, um, and even in some of the, the news articles was, I'll call it a raid for lack of a better term, but when you guys would run into the glass key, you guys would, some cases, I believe one of them, you'd have to use a ruse. So one of them, I believe was you had an ambulance run code pass there or circle the area. And then you guys were in a taxi cab, if I'm not mistaken, um, or some other kind of vehicle that didn't tip you guys off when you, when you went inside, was that, were, th were those ruses, if you will, pretty common to go in there? Is that something you guys, a tool you or a technique you guys used? Yeah, we, we'd, we'd have to be original because the, you know, that we, we wanted to keep doing it. So we'd, we'd have a spotter in the train yard, usually up on top of one of the cold cars watching. And we'd, we'd have an idea and we'd go down and we'd borrow a taxi and we would drive up there in the taxi and a couple of officers would jump out and grab a couple of the dope dealers, throw them in the car and take off with them before everyone else could see we did that with unmarked cars we uh we had police cars run run code sometimes and so everyone would run out and look and see where the police car was going and we'd come in from the other direction mm -hmm. there was uh you know all sorts of silly things that that we did like that they were a lot of fun but they uh always worked i i had forgotten about the ambulance going by but we did that it was uh you know any number of funny things However, the glass key, it had two things going in its favor that made it difficult. First, if you remember, we described the location. You can't access it from the freeway. You'd have to cut through Butler housing or you would have to cut through a meandering path in downtown. So it was hard to get to. It was hard to sneak up on. The police, they had to get creative. We're going to add the story about the ambulance. Second, the glass key had lookouts. So lookouts are the first line of defense for any underground gambling room or dope house. A lookout. Talk talk about those. What are, what are we talking about here? A lookout typically is just some lackey that's sitting outside with one job. They're the first line of defense. It's the guy or girl who sits outside looking for the police. When they see the police, they run inside and they warn the occupants the police are coming. Because of these lookouts, because of the location, the raids at the Glass Key were seldom successful. It's a little bit different today. Like I said, the location on most of these, you're, you've are you probably driven by many of them and you had no idea. The lookout? Or, no. The, uh, ga the uh, oh, gambling den. The gambling dens. Like I yeah. said, they're, they're in every part of town. They're nondescript. <laughs> They cause a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, they don't want to stand out, right? They just... Uh, no. Yeah. No, and the thing is, is it, we, we, we have evolved, right? You have these ones that are overtly illegal, like we've described, like the glass key, like the vast majority of these ones that have the video eight-liners. But now you also have these new card rooms. Mm-hmm. And I've I think... I've heard of these. Yeah, they're they're popping up in, in, in the area. Yeah. But these are, these are run... They seem to be, I've never been to one, but they seem to be a little bit more on the up and up, if you will, because 
they don't hide what they are. They're, from what my research showed, they charge a basically an hourly rate to go in there and play. Well, in the in the card games specifically are, they're like a lot of people take pride in being able card players. Yes, it is a very serious hobby for them. Yes, they want to win money, but they also, mm-hmm. uh, it's like it's like playing bridge. You know, like it's it, it they it's a great way to use their their minds. Yeah. And they take a great they take great pride in it. So I think it's you know it seems to be more than just sh- just a shady back alley place where I think it, you're I, trying to you're trying to you know pay the rent this this month right I I think without without a doubt it is I mean could the act of playing cards be illegal in some circumstances it could I don't know like I said if if they were my my logic is is if they were doing something overtly illegal they're not going to advertise what they are on the front of their business in the middle of the 12th or 13th largest city in the U S or one of the surrounding suburbs, if you will. Right. So the glass key though, it, it had its challenges. It, I mean, we saw how often the police went there today. We have the same challenges in this city. Here's the thing. We don't know exactly how much crime goes on at these illegal gambling dens because they're not registered anywhere they're not registered and when they get robbed they don't call the police now if somebody gets shot and killed or somebody gets shot then yeah they call the police but as a whole there's probably a whole lot of unreported crime that goes Mm -hmm. into it which we talked about that common nuisance law or code or violation that they were that the the crackdown right to me it doesn't to me that the simple solution is don't let them open Right, because if you go into these these illegal ones, every single one of them have a tax stamp from the city, or should have a tax stamp from the city. You say legal ones? No, illegal, illegal ones. They open under a legal premise. Oh, I got you. But yeah. operate illegally in gotcha. most cases. Yeah. So if something's not working, like in this case, why let it? Why 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 give them a permit? kind of baffles me and it's just another it's another thing the police have to dedicate resources to dedicate time to that quite frankly they shouldn't well let's talk uh, one example that comes to mind are um topless clubs so they're open legally as a topless club yeah but the city would have no problem shutting them down immediately i think if they were found if they found prostitution there or drug dealing or now we all know it happens. Of course, what was the place down? There was a, well, I'm not going to name it, but there was a place down on the South freeway off of, uh, mm-hmm. um, Everman parkway. I yep. think they had, sh- I mean, I'm not lying. They had a shooting there every month, right? Maybe every week for three or four weeks straight. I can't remember. I'm not sure they ever did shut that place down. They might, they they might have one point in time. I don't know if it, you. I mean, you brought up the point though. You know it goes on in there. Other cities have have in essence a city just slightly to our east. They're no more there. I mean, if if you if What's, you what el- city is that starts with an A. They they don't have any. I don't. I think they anymore? shut them all down. Really. Yeah, because well, number one, it's a tourist attraction. That, yeah, that well, I know that they didn't like it, right? 
But number two, if the city knows it goes on there, then why have why why devote resources to it? I mean, perhaps it's tax revenue, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know how much money those yeah, places make. There's got to be some sort of tax revenue, of course. At some point, I don't know that it's worth it. Well, I think it's I think it's not until you get to the point where that like that place down on Everman Parkway that's that uh where 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 it literally becomes a public nuisance where you got gunplay outside near 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 Chase Bank. Well, then, uh, and I agree. That, that's that's that ha- that's happening way too frequently, and it really does become a public nuisance. Then, yeah. The well, here, but here, here's here's the problem with it. When there's a problem there, when they become a problematic location, now the police have to respond. I'm not talking about your patrol officer. I'm talking about your investigators. They have to respond and say, "Oh, illegal activity going right. on." Well, again, like I go back to. That's a complete waste of time. The city says, hey, here's a permit, open up, and we know that you're going to have problems here. And when you do have problems, we're going to pull cops off the streets. We're going to pull cops away from answering calls, pull cops away from doing a job where people call in. They need you to go to this den that harbors criminal activity and solve crime down there. It's a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if that's going on, just like in these gambling places, shut it down. Right. It's that simple. Don't or don't let them open. I should say. Right. It's, well, as Foster said in his interview, or you know, that they were told to lay off because they'd been there too many times. Right. Well, at that point, just shut the thing down. Just shut it down. I I, I can't imagine it being that difficult. There are cities. Again, go just to our east with that town that starts with an A. I don't even think they have game rooms there. Argyle. No. Well, that's north anyway. Yeah, that's north of here. <laughs> so, anyway, Albert Huey U. Dens of ill repute. D- Dens of ill repute and Albert Huey U. Who, we could find no one to speak ill about him. Isn't it? It is, it is an interesting point you're, about to, you're bringing up here. Even the cops liked him. Right. <laughs> so, after that fateful May 14th, Albert... He never reopened the glass key. However, Albert, he was open to the idea of his cook, Opal Jean Peoples, taking over the cafe. I said she was one of the best short order cooks. Opal said, quote, it was one of the finest restaurants for blacks. That's what they say, end quote. Albert said, quote, I told her I didn't want to have nothing to do with it. She can have it. Peoples gave it a run, but it was short-lived due to a lack of business after May 14th. And it certainly would be, I would think, difficult to reopen under the circumstances. But real quick, you you looked up uh, some history on the glass key, and I was curious, where, where did that name come from? The glass key was based on a 1935 movie based on a novel about a politician involved in a murder. Hmm. Now, real quick, we talked about it, about it, um, about its location. And and one other thing um, that kind of came to the surface, a lady wrote to the star telegram and complained about how, how it was described in terms of its location 
I believe it was referred to as being in East Fort Worth. Uh, but in fact, it was on the, it's, it's still there. The building's still there. It's on the West side of 35. This lady said, quote, this is truly strange as the glass key is on the West side of interstate 35 and close enough to downtown that it's a wonder a stray bullet didn't blast out a window at the Bass Tower. Ah, I mean, <laughs> come on. We know those windows are, you know, they're fortified. I'm they're, sure. for, they're fortified. <laughs> But uh, to assuage the concerns of the letter writer, we could say that the glass key is on the east side of downtown. No. It's not? No, it'd be south of, I mean, it would southeast. be. Southeast. Southeast downtown. Southeast down, not of, southeast downtown. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, in January 1991, the first homicide victim in the city of Fort Worth had a connection to the glass key shooting. That victim was Tim Miller. A second man, Jerry Hasty, was shot minutes later at the same club. Tim's brother, Paul, was there, but he dodged the bullets. The shooting started at the Happy City Lounge located at 1000 East Daggett after someone stepped on the foot of a man. It's amazing the trigger points of some people. Huh? Mm-hmm. Strangely, this was not the first time Miller was shot in a one-month period. Three weeks prior, Tim Miller was shot in an argument over a radio. So at this point, the case of the Glass Key murders went cold. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Until next time, I'm John Henry, and that is Jake White. Goodbye. Roxo Media House.